0: Welcome to the final In Contact podcast of 2020. This episode, we'll be talking to Mark Stallon about the upcoming annual CupGrow Cambridge Potato Conference and how it's taking on a new look for its 31st year. We'll also be hearing from Syngenta's Harry Fordham, who will be discussing how developing technology will help growers to meet the evolving consumer demands and the looming figure of having to feed 9 billion people by 2050. This talk was taken from his recent interview at the 2020 Crop Tech Show seminar. And, as it's December and the festive season is upon us, I'll be dropping in a few christmassy theme facts along the way. Like, for example, did you know that the amount of beer consumed in the UK over Christmas equates to filling 57 Olympic-sized swimming pools? But for now, let's get our monthly update from Graham Redman from the Anderson Centre.
1: Hello, this is Graham Redman here from the Andersons Centre. Scientists around the world are agreed that human activity is warming the planet through the release of large amounts of carbon from organic matter as it oxidises into carbon dioxide and goes into the atmosphere. Greenhouse gases are necessary but at such high concentrations the world will change And it's now agreed humanity will struggle to cope with the changes for many reasons. So the world has to decarbonise. Politicians agree to this, but are each loathed to make the first serious move, being so politically difficult, as decarbonising would involve dramatic changes to the lifestyles and costs of living for each of us. It would necessitate considerable increases in taxes to discourage the use of carbon, big rises of other costs because oil is such a cheap source of energy, fewer, if any, air flight travel, much less driving, and the removal from the roads of fuel-inefficient 4x4 gas-guzzling cars and SUVs. This is probably not something the farming community particularly wants to hear. Our lifestyle and the comforts we are accustomed to from heated houses, travel, food production and most of the things that we own frankly have benefited from easily available relatively low cost energy from the combustion of oil and other fossil fuels. UK farming spent some time thinking about how it might become decarbonised in coming years It requires considerable political will to make a start. It really does, because without it, there's little sign of society, including the farming fraternity, making moves to a truly low-carbon way of farming. The farming community is proud of its care of the environment. But this issue, arguably the biggest environmental issue of the planet, is a bit different to keeping the hedgerows we are responsible for stocked with biodiversity it's separate government announcements this month saying that diesel cars would not be available for sale in a decade were welcomed with individuals vowing to buy old-fashioned combustion engine cars in nine and a half years time this is probably true but if we do believe there is a problem this approach will not solve it. But to be honest, the messages are not clear yet of any real commitment, government commitment to decarbonise farming. Public support encourages the use of anything. For example, illness services are 100% subsidised in the UK. So British people therefore go to doctors more frequently than people from other countries. It's basic, simple economics. So the same is true with subsidised or low duty diesel. Farming will inevitably be using more diesel because we get it so cheap. Rough calculations suggest we save about 850 million pounds a year from duty from the pink diesel discount. If government really wants low carbon food, this will disappear soon. So before it does, the farming community should proactively take a case to government to divert that subsidy to support low-carbon practices instead of burning diesel. These might be supporting producing biomass or low-carbon crop rotations or carbon-efficient animal husbandry techniques for examples. Another area I want to touch on this month is animal welfare. It's an area where British governments are looking to improve on in the new policies post-Brexit. Animal welfare payments will be available for going beyond the regulatory baseline. Where that baseline is set is therefore quite important. Ask any consumer, as they push their laden trolleys out of a supermarket on a sunny morning, whether they think animals should be treated with higher or lower welfare standards they will almost inevitably say higher. This is actually obvious, but unfortunately meaningless. Sit them down with a cup of tea and ask them what they really think. Firstly, most of them will not have a strong opinion about how good the welfare should be. I mean, if you created a sliding scale of poorer conditions than in the wild, same as if they were wild animals, Better conditions than if they wandered free, for example, with ample, good, clean food, uh, suitable temperature, um, decent health care, etc., that we're familiar with now? Or should I go beyond that to the highest animal welfare condition, i.e., being the same as your farm dog, or dare I say, even the house cat? At that point, many consumers will start to think a little more critically about the topic. Yes, everybody wants animals to be treated with the respect and dignity and the good care that they deserve. But should they be pampered like Floss the dog or Dreamy the cat? I can think of several people living in poorer conditions than many pets. Then when you develop the discussion with the consumer about the costs of keeping pets compared with farm animals, then it creates a perspective from which to consider animal welfare slightly more carefully again. Ultimately, the shopper will vote with their purses, especially if animal welfare standards in other countries are acceptable, but much cheaper to deliver. Have a very safe and peaceful Christmas, and may 2021 be something that you have been dreaming of all year.
0: for another Christmas fact. Did you know the UK eats its way through 25 million Christmas puddings a year? And over the Christmas period, 120,000 tonnes of potatoes are consumed. And on that tasty potato note, we caught up with Mark Stallone, one of the organisers of the Cambridge Annual Potato Conference. So I'm joined today by Mark Stallum, who's going to be talking to us about the 31st annual Cambridge Potato Conference, which is being held virtually this year on the 15th to the 16th of December. Good morning Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. So first off, if you'd just like to introduce yourself a bit and tell us a bit about your involvement with the conference.
2: Yes, good morning, Rachel. It's a great opportunity for a sponsorship um, deal with Syngenta, who sponsor the conference, to be able to advertise by word of mouth, literally, rather than actually having to go onto a website or send out circular emails. So, yes, my name is Mark Stallum. Um, I formerly, until a week ago, worked for a company called Niab, and before that, Cambridge University Farm for effectively 34 years. I've now changed direction. I'm on the dark side, as some people have said, working um, as a private consultant in the potato industry, but I've been contracted back in by CUPGRA, so that's Cambridge University Potato Growers Research Association, and I won't use that long um, association uh, sentence again, I'll just use CUPGRA, um, really to, continue the conference in this very difficult period that we've got through lockdown and regulations due to COVID. So historically, we've been running the conference, as you say, for 31 years. It's been ongoing every single year, and we were determined as a committee not to miss a year. If you miss a year and go to our biennial conference and so on, you tend to lose the plot and people don't come back in one year. They forget which year it is and so on. So We've persisted with this and it's caused some problems which we can discuss a little bit later. But basically the conference has been run um, by a team for many years. It was set up by a cooperative um, called Anglin Produce that morphed into Greenvale AP um, and Greenvale are still associated with the conference in terms of the number of people that they send. So that was back in 1990 and I have to say that I've been at every event, Um, I have not always presented, but I've usually done a paper or certainly a workshop, but from really the mid-2000s, I've been involved much more on the day-to-day basis of running it, um, which is basically linking with two Cambridge colleges, Robinson College and St John's College, for the conference venues and also the dining event, which is sort of renowned feature of the Carpetra conference every year. The Potato Barons Banquet has got um, connotations of being a great event to come to and it's quite sad this year that we actually won't have that face-to-face networking opportunity that we've had for 30 years. So we've had to go virtual and we can discuss how that has actually happened um, a little bit later.
0: So what's the theme of this year's conference and what kinds of topics and speakers uh, can people expect if they attend?
2: So every year we have a theme and out of that theme we create a title and historically when we started um, the person who was really uh, instrumental in starting the conference back in 1990 um, was a guy called Robin Pooley and he, he was a bit of a classics scholar so he actually um, decided to translate the English title into Latin. So this year, we've got Solani, tuberosi, Post-Tempore, Brexit, covid enzi Cultes, Ecopia, which translated is potato growing and supply, reset, post-Covid and Brexit. Still a mouthful, but it's less than the Latin. So for the last five years, we've gone back to the Latin title. It makes us a little bit uh, unique, but we've persisted with it. So what does it really mean? Basically, we want the speakers to address the theme of what their crystal ball vision would be for potato growing as an industry once we've got through Brexit, if ever, and once we get through COVID, if ever. And so it's crystal ball gazing in terms of the future. Now, historically, we discussed the conference theme in sort of May um, of the year of the conference, and we then progressed that to August and go on to November, where we enlist the speakers. This year, we put out the conference programme to our, to our um, committee. Um, we then looked for a range of speakers that could fulfil this role and then started contacting them. Literally by June, we had everyone bar two people on the programme agreed to actually come and talk. Now, come is the, perhaps the wrong word to use. Maybe just present at our conference. And I think having to set aside a day or two days of people's time uh, to attend an event and, and all the associated you know, networking events is sometimes very difficult for many of, uh, of the speakers that we'd like to enlist. We've often asked for people from government and they often have three line whips in December for crucial matters. So we've been very difficult in terms of getting them to come along this year, because of the, the the virtual nature of the conference, we've been able to enlist some extremely good speakers. And I'm very proud that, you know, we've got this audience coming on board now to listen to these speakers because of everybody being really pressured uh, in terms of their work environment and so on. We're keeping the papers very short. We're only having um, a day when we have short sessions. We then have a very much shorter second day rather than you know a two-thirds day. And so that has been the trend, is to go much more of snappy papers and being able to present the speakers we want. So a great line of speakers, they're all addressing in various sessions with different session themes what we've got. So we've got basically setting the scene for things like climate change and the future of nutrition. Are we moving in a different direction post-COVID? What are the opportunities for retailing and and processing in there? Um, Is there going to be a change in what we've had in in the last 12 to 18 months in terms of Brexit and COVID? And then in the future, uh, have we got the right staff? Are we training the right people? Um, Is government getting the right message? Are they giving us the right messages? So the afternoon session is going to be a great way of looking at that. Looking at resources, are we guaranteed the resource, for example, water in the future, that we really need to grow a crop? And then, as usual, we go into the sort of technical sessions whereby the science gets a bit deep for people after normally a very big lunch. So hopefully they'll have a very quick lunch this year and be into the technical stuff where we're talking about the future of potato research in the new Crop Science Centre at Cambridge. We're looking at diploid breeding, a new technique in advancing um, the, the progress of new varieties. Looking at modern varieties in sprout suppressants is a new theme in the industry. We've lost products. What happens there? Some historic work and some new work going on. And then looking at whether we can retain our soil as a valuable resource. Are we are we really losing the ability to, to produce crops off our existing soil database? So. That's the sort of theme we've got. Some great speakers lined up, and we'll have some very short, snappy sessions um, involved in that.
0: Right. So it sounds like you're covering a great scope of topics there. And um, so, as you've mentioned, and sort of had many things this year, uh, the conference has had to adapt, and it's taken on this sort of completely new virtual life, uh, which is it's new to everyone. How how um, how is that going to work this year?
2: Well, we we decided that we would like to have a virtual hybrid event so that's now been abandoned but a virtual hybrid event was having basically what we were allowed with regulations in October would be to have groups of three speakers or four speakers in a conference room socially isolated but with a film camera crew and the the, the session chair and the facilitator who is sort of basically feeding questions to various people to the chair and so on in the same room and so it would be filmed live and be going out over very high speed broadband internet connection with the possibility of using lots of different mobile providers if the landline basically failed so a sort of coverall route but very much on having a very small mini audience and people presenting well um, we persisted with that for about three months and, and what we had to do with the government regulations now saying that only by the 2nd of December, the earliest, we decided to go fully virtual. So what we're doing here is now that the people will be filmed in their own homes or offices or wherever they choose to do, whether it's on Table Mountain in Cape Town. Um, they will be filmed from there and we will get a live feed, a higher quality f- uh, feed than most of the sort of commercial um. Uh, media translation, but hopefully with a film camera crew guiding it all and making the speakers feel comfortable about operating to what is not just as you and I are talking, it's probably an audience of maybe 200 people um, worldwide they're dealing with. So, you know, the idea is to get people there, to get them confident and get talking and then with the ability to actually have questions. So we can talk about that a little bit later. but very simply, the second day will run, as most of us are running, over Zoom, a professional Zoom uh, presentation, again run with a commercial company who are skilled at doing this. We don't, including me, we as a company um, and myself, don't yet have the skills to do that um, um, professionally with the confidence we need. But it will basically allow the panellists on the second day discussing um, zoning for cultivation or virus management, to actually have only the speakers on the screen. So there isn't this confusion with all the audience appearing randomly on the screen, doing whatever they do in their home. So it's going to be fully virtual, it's a shame. We won't have any of the social networking um, ability, um, but we're progressing and it's a great opportunity that we've just, I've just had an email coming through from one of our members in North America and they might send one or two people every year but now they want their entire agronomy team to be viewing the conference. So this sets the theme for future, that we could expand it, film it, and send it around the world, whereby more of our members and non-members can participate.
0: Yeah, yeah, sort of a, bit of a blessing in disguise. It opens up such a global uh, range of speakers and, and viewers. Um, so with the people viewing from home and the attendees, is there that opportunity to get involved in the conversation and ask questions? Um, Yeah,
2: we're hoping, move on, that that KAMPGRA as an organisation had to react quite quickly um, during late spring, early summer, and that we have two, we call them open days or members days, where we walk around the field where our experiments are, and that is a a networking opportunity for 60, 70, 80 people to come round and engage with the researchers doing the work. What we did was, a week ahead, we filmed effectively people, the research team speaking in front of a crop background, showing pictures of tubers and plots, ground covers um, and so on. And that was then released a week later on our traditional date of an open day. So people were able to view the background of what we've been doing, some of the data that we produce, and then have the ability to ask questions over uh, the portal of Zoom. However, due to difficulties with having 70 or 80 people joining, it didn't work that well because of perhaps the lack of confidence in people asking lots of questions. So the verbal element did not work well, but we still had written questions asked. With the audience of the conference, we have a facilitation team in the two companies we're employing to allow verbal questions to happen. And I personally feel that is a much better medium by which to communicate questions backwards and forwards. So they'll be able to ask speakers at the end of their sessions, or they'll be able to ask panellists questions either verbally or, as usual, through written questions, which most webinars tend to, to get involved in. So we're pushing the envelope out, but these companies have got experience in dealing with verbal answers and verbal questions.
0: Right. And um, so you've you, you piqued my interest, and I'm, I'm sure you've piqued the interest of all the listeners at home. And um, so, if people would like to attend, how's they go about getting tickets? For conference?
2: Very simply, this year we normally have conference packs that we send out. We have quite a lot of paperwork that um, my former PA, Kate Pottle, has to send out this year. We will literally be sending out a link for each of the two days. The first one, will be for the main sessions on day one, and the second one will be for the second day. But you buy both days. You don't just buy one day. So very simply, um, to go to it, go to Cupra Conference 2020 on any search engine, and it will pull you up to one of two sites, either the university booking site, which is the direct route where you book the attendance and pay, or it will get you to the NIAB Cupra site which will lead you down to another level, explaining basically what the program's about and then giving the booking site back to the university booking site. So there's two ways of doing it, just use the search engine um, and that will find you into the conference. But type Cupra Conference 2020, not 19, otherwise you will get a dead end.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, so it sounds like it's gonna be a really fascinating two days. Um, what would you say you're most looking forward to from the conference?
2: I think I said at the beginning that the conference really was set up for an opportunity to discuss research in a commercial environment. But one of the things that attracted people originally was a free lunch, in this case, a free dinner. So the whole entire conference was sponsored and that set the tone for being very much a a networking event and the go-to event to come to. So I look forward to it every year because of my organizational capacity, And also having to present papers um, and all the work that leads up to it. By the end of the first day, I'm ready for a meal and something stronger to fortify me. And it's a great evening. And so it's disappointing that we won't actually have this this year. However, it's a new environment. I'm looking forward to being able to sell to more people around the world um, who don't have to travel to us. And I'm looking to, to basically go to what is really a great line of speakers to say, you know, CUPGRA is here, CUPGRA is getting stronger. We've just got to react in different ways. What I'm most looking forward to is 2021 and getting back to seeing the people that I probably haven't seen other than a very small screen for eight, months, months, 10 months, um, in some cases, by the time the conference comes around. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing people, even if it's virtually, and just striving pushing the conference on and making it continue its successful run.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today. Um, We'll place a link to the website where people can purchase tickets from in our description box below. And yeah, we look forward to the 31st annual Cambridge Potato Conference, uh, running the 15th to the 16th of December. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Rachel. Love them or hate them, 40% of Brussels sprouts grown in the UK are eaten on the weeks before and during Christmas. And 8 out of 10 sprouts eaten across the world actually come from Syngenta Genetics. Now we'll hear from Harry Forden, who will be looking at how present and future technology is going to shape and revolutionise how we work with crops and crop protection and how that will affect food production. This interview was taken from this year's Crop Tech Show, which saw the bringing together of the scientific research and know-how of a variety of industry specialists and farmers to deliver a fantastic array of seminars and information informing growers how to future-proof their business.
3: Now, obviously, I work for Syngenta, which is a, a crop protection product manufacturer and uh, And we're looking at the best way that we can advise growers and agronomists and operators to use our products and to ensure that products get used safely, effectively and efficiently. as we know there's many challenges facing the agricultural industry of today uh, there's a massive focus from consumers uh, and at the end of the day, they are our customers on where their food comes from, how it's produced, the quality of this food becoming increasingly important. however. They're expecting all of these things, but with food prices to remain relatively static. This is a fine balance for growers and uh, agronomists and managers to innovate in their production techniques and management of their produce, uh, whilst ensuring customers and consumers are happy with the produce they're receiving. So we can help using data and digital tools to help farmers produce more efficient, better crops, and ultimately, at the end, become more profitable. As we've seen recently in in the recent Arable Farming magazine, there's been a massive focus on digital solutions to aid with decision making and, in the end, help with sustainable farm businesses. And we've all heard the, the, the big figures of we need to be able to feed 9 billion people by 2050. And as an industry, this is a high focus and a huge focus for all of us. Not just that. But also in the UK and the EU, we're going to have to produce all this food and not gain any land to do it with. We, in, in some respects, we might even lose some land. As a result, productivity may have to go up, as it has done historically. However, as we know, this can't be at any cost, and we need to think about the environment and the effect that we're all having on the environment. Regulatory and environmental legislation is becoming ever more a factor in our lives in agriculture. We're well aware of current changes in uh, environmental regulations, along with the fact that we have lost many go-to reliable products: chlorothalonil, diquat, and various triazoles, just to just to name but a few. Um, the regulation environment has moved from a hazard to a risk-based system. This gives us challenges, but also some opportunities. We can rethink how we apply current products, how we apply old products, and actually. When we're thinking about new products we can rethink how these are registered and to ensure that these get used uh, accurately and efficiently farming is becoming more and more unpredictable and the last couple of autumns and summers and springs have given us great examples of the weather just not playing ball and if we can use data to help predict for example when weeds may emerge or when disease comes into the crop and so that you can use your uh, products more targetedly, that's got to be a benefit for everyone, and we can do that and model these things using uh, plant protection products uh, for the future. Not only that, but we've got to bear in mind that consumers are telling us they want less plant protection products to be used on their food. The EU would like a reduction in uh, these products of 50% by 2030, and obviously, at Syngenta, this is something we can't ignore. You know, this is uh, a very pertinent point. Going forwards, when we launch new products, whether it's uh, crop protection products or seeds, we want to make sure that their potential is maximized. And so that when our growers and our customers are using these products, they are using them to the best of their ability, whilst also using them responsibly. And we can do that by maybe when we launch these new products, use digital technology, data, and algorithms that we have on all these products to ensure that when you, the grower use them they get the best out of it so i've broken my presentation down into sort of three sections i've got the future the near future and things we can use now and and how that can help growers in in the present day to to uh, get better results from using our products so in the future Uh, Consumer interest in where their food comes from is growing, and it's growing rapidly. Buying locally sourced food is ever more important, and as we've all experienced recently during the recent COVID lockdown, uh, part one, should we say now, uh, farm shops were in great demand, and local food was really, really popular. However, as we know, this isn't always popular. We can't grow avocados in the UK, nor can we supply asparagus in December. However, traceability of food is really important. And in China, Syngenta combined with uh, local supermarkets to provide reliable and successful traceability using blockchain technology of strawberries. So in the table at the top there, you can see what we use is uh, a QR code on the packet, uh, on the punnet of strawberries. And the customer can take a picture with their phone, and it can tell them. where it got packed, where it got distributed, uh, where it got picked, and when it got picked, and the exact polytunnel it was picked in. And that's really, really cool technology. And that's stuff that I think there would be a great demand for uh, from our our customers at the end of the day. Moving on from that, work we're doing currently uh, with colleagues in Europe is whereby we can we can give you a, a product and we can sell you products and we can give recommendations for those products. So you would have seen in the UK, we've done low slow cover talking about integrating the best possible pre uh, protocols. But how do we take any uh, potential problematic issues out of that? We can do this system whereby, for example, we can put a QR code on the product. Uh, The grower or operator can take a picture of that QR code, and that can then be sent into the farm management system. The stock is automatically uh, adjusted as a result, They know what product's going in the sprayer. The farm management system can use the cloud to then talk to the sprayer, tell the sprayer what product's in there, and if there's any uh, environmental uh, regulations, i.e. it has to be sprayed with 90% drift reduction, four-star, three-star LERAP rated nozzles, or if there's any buffer zone uh, restrictions, and then it can automatically put that into the sprayer. So for example, if it has to use a three-star LERAP rated nozzle, it will ensure that the operator gets a warning when the pressure gets too close to that three-star LERAT rating. And then we go on to the near future. As mentioned uh, before, the EU would like us to reduce uh, plant protection products by up to 50% by 2030. There's a a further need for potentially organic growing uh, as well. And so what we can use is sensors that we've got currently available to precision-apply products. And what we do at the moment is, for example, if we have a small issue on a, in a field, be it weeds or disease, we, uh, we don't put a sticky plaster over that bit of disease. What we do is we essentially mummify the whole field because we spray the whole field. What we can do now with using pulse width modulation technology and accurate sensors is uh, ensure that when the product's applied, it's applied accurately and to the problem area. And now maximizing efficiency on a farm is one of the highest priorities for any farmer or farm manager. Ensuring that the job's done uh, effectively and efficiently is the best possible way to maximize profitability for these farm businesses. If I could tell you that we had a system that could predict septoria infection up with, up to, with, with high levels of accuracy, uh, but also tell you how long a certain product is going to last in certain given situations, So that instead of uh, prophylactically spraying, we can spray when we need to, and then also we can spray when that product's run out to keep the protection in there. So for example, it would potentially do away with the need for something like a T0, T1, T2, T3 timing, you would actually go, there's Septoria coming in next week, I'll spray, and then I know that products last for three weeks or four weeks or whatever it might be in this current weather circumstance, and then I'll spray again. And then we can use digital tools and agronomy driven data to, dis- to drive decision making. And that's great. We've got all these tools I've talked about, which seem quite a long way away. But now what have we got available to us now at, from Syngenta? To ensure our products are applied directly, uh, correctly, and effectively, and responsibly, Syngenta do a lot of work on application, and that's one of my biggest uh, passions in in my job is application technology, nozzle technology, uh, and how to apply products correctly. And we've recently released a, an app that's free to download off the iOS store or uh, or Android store, which is Spray Assist. And see what that does, and it, it might not be as positive as it sounds, is you have me in your pocket, so I can give you uh, a nozzle recommendation over the phone, but what this Spray Assist app can do is look at the weather in your situation, and different, and you can save different locations. It can then uh, you input what job you would like to do, be it pre-emergence herbicides, post-emergence herbicides, whatever it may be, on on a variety of crops from cereals through to veg, and it will then recommend the best water volume, best forward speed, and best nozzle to use for that product in that situation. Also, you know, one thing that growers consistently say to me, which is a, a real bugbear, is, is calculating buffer zones. And as you know, buffer zones are really tricky to calculate because we have uh, varying buffer zones for varying products. We've got a, uh, a mapping piece of software with some French co- colleagues called Qualisible, and that can look at uh, potential watercourses near where you're spraying and tell you what the buffer zone would be with that product. And so that's a, and it makes calculating product usage and uh, area to spray much more straightforward. And then finally, we have uh, a new uh, digital platform called Protector. This is a new digital offering from Syngenta. It allows growers and agronomists to tell the story in their of their fields in their own way. So they can customize as much data as they would like. So you can do mapping to get uh disease scores or weed scores. Um, and you can count for beneficial uh, pests as well as uh, you know, uh, non-beneficial organisms. We can do worm counts and all this kind of stuff. And you can record them, geolocate it with your phone, and save it using both a, an app on your phone and a, a desktop computer. Um, all these insights will allow us to give sensible, good recommendations. Uh, for those fields. And it's got integration with John Deere to produce variable rate application maps. um, And it can overlay these application maps and yield maps from, uh, from cradle to grave, essentially, as soon as you start drilling that field to as soon as you start harvesting. So in conclusion, we've got... A lot of challenges facing us, and I think it's fair to say that what we want to do is ensure that growers uh, get the most efficient they can in their businesses to increase profitability, use our products sensibly, and use our products responsibly and get the best out of it. This helps uh, our growers, but it also helps consumers know that when they're buying British, fu- British products, uh, they know they're getting the best possible produce available. I've shown you lots of stuff that Syngenta are looking at in the future. I've shown you some things that Syngenta are looking at now. Um, and it's a really exciting space to be in because, as I said before, all these challenges that we've got definitely breed opportunity. And I think that's something we need to grasp and a and chance that we can uh, change how we look at using plant protection products for the, for the future and actually forever.
0: Really interesting stuff there. And I highly recommend you go check out the Crop Tech Show website and catch up with all the information and interesting topics discussed at the show. The link to the website and more information about the Crop Tech Show can be found below. So that is it from the In Contact podcast for 2020. We'd like to thank everyone that has spoken on the podcast this past year. You've provided us with great insights into fascinating topics and we have all learnt a lot. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Syngenta Crops UK, where you can find all the latest technical and community updates from the field. You can also find us on YouTube at Syngenta UK TV. Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you have a very Merry Christmas.